Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the big event in our Wendy Takuda episode. Wendy didn't know it when she agreed to come to the Chronicle for a podcast recording, but she feels like a member of my family. In the 1980s, when there were really just five TV channels in the Bay Area, and people got their news from the afternoon newscast and the morning paper, KPIX was our channel. Wayne Walker's 49er preview on Sundays before the game, Dave McElhatton as the lead anchor, and young Wendy Takuda, a reporter who moved to the anchor chair and completed what was, with apologies to Dennis Richmond, the greatest TV news team of my lifetime. I'm about to play a really depressing clip from 1985, but this still brings me to my happy place. Tonight, startling new information about this jet six-mile dive near the Bay Area that resulted in dozens of injuries. Plus, the Spanish jetliner crash that claimed 148 lives and questions about police chokeholds in one Bay Area city. Also tonight, new hope for premature babies, the remarkable trip by an artificial heart patient, and the Mardi Gras in full swing. That more next on Nightcast. In this episode, we cover Wendy's early career in Seattle. She tells stories about her parents who were in internment camps. We talk at length about her students' Rising Above program, something that helped define Wendy's career and continues to this day. And of course, we talk about Dave McElhatton, Wendy's partner and mentor and friend. Here she is talking about the first days of their partnership and how the empathy he projected wasn't just an act for TV. I'll tell you something about Mac that will tell you a lot. When he was growing up, his aunt, who was blind, lived with them. And so they had to move. You could not move the furniture because the aunt had the furniture memorized and she would move around the house, you know, safely. But Mac would take her out into the world. And he said back in those days, you know, you didn't see a lot of blind people out in the world, but he would take her on his arm and take her out. And... um to me, that's what you saw in that, you know, this is, can you imagine this kid, um, I mean, having the love and the courage to take his, his aunt, blind aunt out without worrying about what people were going to think of them, you know, just because yeah. he was sweet, because he was, he was that sweet. We had a fantastic time. I think you'll sense my excitement. Wonderful stories in this episode. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Wendy Takuda, welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you. We are thrilled to have you here. So we've been we've been here for a while. We've been looking through some photos and uh, some negatives. Um, what's what's jumped out at you so far before we get started? What struck me? I was looking at one of these really early early articles when I lived on a houseboat <laughs> in Sausalito. How how was houseboat thought, wow. life? 
It was like going on vacation every night because yeah. you just you'd walk down this dock, you know, to get to your little houseboat, and all your troubles and thoughts would just sort of drift away, and then there'd be a night heron sitting on a rope, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> connecting. That sounds your boat lovely. To the dock. It was lovely. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of an outdoors nature person. Always have been. So for me, that was heaven. Yeah, well, you know, we have photos of you gardening. So yeah. <laughs> the Chronicle coming to your house and gardening. I, I'd have to guess that um, a houseboat life is probably pre-kid. Yeah, but um, I we moved off the houseboat when I was about seven months pregnant because when the tide was out, You'd have to jump up this, <laughs> you'd have to climb up, you know, to get onto the houseboat. And uh-huh. I, I was having a hard time doing that. Plus, you can't have a baby on a houseboat. It's like, yeah. you know, where's the kid splash? I mean, you, you, just, <laughs> you can't do it. So uh, that was when we moved off the houseboat. Yeah. But well, it was a great life. It sounds like a good life. That was 78, uh, if I'm correct. And yeah. I, I'm going to, like, okay. have you piece this together for me because, I, and I'm going to say it out, out front, um, it's probably going to make things uncomfortable, but um, you were, like, my news team. Oh, you and Dave McLaughlin and Wayne Walker, I mean, I don't know that, that we ever moved to the channel. Um, I discovered Dennis Richmond later, and he's wonderful. I don't remember seeing anybody except you guys. I remember waking up in the morning on Sundays to Wayne Walker's 49er preview, and I felt like you and Dave McElhatton were part of my family. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so I'd love to just kind of now it's like you're here, and I'd love to hear beyond the television. And even going back, if you can tell me, when you were a kid, was this something, was there a moment, kind of an origin story moment where you realized, I wanted to be in broadcasting? Never. I, never. Never. I mean, think back. Well, you know, I was born in 1950, so, I mean, there were no, there wasn't any television. There was barely television news. There was barely, barely television. <laughs> um, but when television news started there weren't any people of color there weren't any women on it so it wasn't something that would occur to me you know kids unless you have some immense imagination Mm -hmm. what's possible to them is what they see that's what's possible so it didn't occur to me I remember once in the radio in the car and we were listening to uh the news my mom had the news on in the car and I said why aren't why are they always men doing uh, on the radio? And she said, I think it's because women have like a high voices that are, you know, not. Oh, not, no. Yeah, That's right. not the message. Oh. Well, it was sort of the reality. Yeah. I mean, not that women had voices that were hard to listen to. What, what the reality was, was you only heard men on TV as disc jockeys, as hosts, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. And um, so when it occurred to me to be a newscaster was I was out of college um, I mean when even when I went to college you know what women did was they became nurses if they're going to graduate from college and go in the professional world mm-hmm. you became a nurse or a teacher and you know if you thought about a lawyer 
You married a lawyer. You didn't go to law school. So um, it was a big deal for me, actually. In co- I mean, this just shows how old I am. It's kind of like ancient feminist history or something. But it was a big deal when I began to think about, maybe I'd like to be a lawyer. It was a big deal, you know. And I, mm-hmm. then I worked at legal services for a year, and I went, I don't want to do this. I, be- I became a paralegal, and I student taught for a year because that's what women did. Yeah. When I started to think about news, I had spent a year in Japan. I came back. There was a Japanese-American woman. It was the first time I had seen in, in, in Seattle that an Asian woman, an Asian, was on television. Uh, there were hardly any women. Mm-hmm. And, and when she was on TV, my dad would go, everybody come in the front room, Barbara's on. <laughs> and we would all watch her, you know? And somebody knew her and... Um, they said, hey, I know her. I bet she would like, because she was a really nice lady. She would let you come down and see what they do in the, a newsroom. And mm-hmm. I went down. Sure enough, she did. And um, I watched her and went out on a little little story with her and watched her in the newsroom. And when I was in that newsroom, I had this deep feeling in my gut that that was where I belonged. Mm-hmm. This is this is where I want to be. That's incredible. How old were you? I was twenty four. Yeah, twenty three, going on twenty four. Twenty four. And so then I just focused all my energy in getting a job in news, and got a job as a secretary at a t- local TV station in a, the public affairs department, which was a great fit. So you weren't even starting out. with a with a job in broadcast. Oh, you no. were you were willing to take a job and just be in the building. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was the only way I was going to get a job, yeah. was just to be in the building. And, and I happened to get a job in a station where they had a policy of trying to move people up from within. Uh-huh. And I had a great boss, and he said, look, I can't pay you anything. But, uh, and I know you, you, you should not be a secretary. But I will teach you in this department, I will teach you to write, We'll teach you what television is about, how to put a story, you know, a, a story together, basically, and maybe even get some on-air work mm-hmm. because of public affairs. And it was a good fit for me because I was active in the community, Asian community there, and Asian American community. And so, you know, I brought, I brought stuff to the table as well. And um, he was true to his word. You know, when I was there for a year and a half and learned about television. And eventually, got a job as a reporter. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel accepted early on in the newsroom? You, it sounds like the person who gave you the position was a good actor, but oh, I'm yeah. wondering what the what the climate was like back then. Well, I was the first, I was the second Asian American reporter ever hired in Seattle uh-huh. on in television, and I looked like I was about 14. <laughs> in Japanese American culture, <laughs> you know, for a, a nice Japanese girl who's uh-huh. been raised to be polite, um, you respect authority. Um, there's actually a word for you know if somebody offers you a cup of tea, you say no, and you'll, and you you hold back. Maybe on the third time you'll take the tea, and maybe you'll let it sit there and you won't even take a sip. Yeah. Okay. So put that into a newsroom. You know, where your job is to go out and find the truth, no matter what 
the source or the, the, the officials are telling you. And so there was a managing editor every day. Before you went into editing, um, you had to have your script okayed by a managing editor. So I would be standing in there in line with my little script holding it, you know, like nervously. And people would go, <coughs> other reporters would go, hey, could I'm on deadline, get out of the way. And they, <laughs> they would just step in front of me. And I would go, oh, oh. And then after a while I went, hey, I'm on deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on deadline too. And I had to learn to just go, well, so am I. You know, which was which was culturally really kind of out of character for me. So I had to tap into a lot of, you know, I had to learn a different culture. I really had to learn a different culture. So you, you had, it sounds like that was your college. I mean, you had three years of, of training there and then, um, you know, on the job. And then how did the Bay Area come up? And take a sip of your coffee. Oh yeah, when sorry. You it. I'm sorry. I'm having a coffee. You'll I keep excuse seeing me. you. I keep seeing you looking at the coffee. Oh. I want you to take a sip of a coffee. <laughs> okay. Wendy, so, whenever will, you want a sip of the coffee, you take I'll it, take whether it. we're on or not. Take you've it. earned it. Okay. Um, so I get this call from a woman who is uh, a Bay Area native, Diane Fukami, and now a good friend, and and she goes. She was actually the secretary at, at KPS. She goes. We're doing a national search for an Asian American reporter because Kaidi Tong, who was the the you know every station in the Bay Area had one uh-huh. Asian. It's just like in Seattle, everybody had one African American, and then about three women, most of them blonde. Anyway, she goes, "We're doing a national search for an Asian American, and we uh-huh. we'd like to see your tape." So I go, "Oh, okay." So I put together this tape. And send it to her, mm-hmm. and and you know, national search meant calling about five people. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I don't know if there were even five. It was a handful. You know, there were very few of us, and I got called down for an interview. And anyway, they hired me. And and um, at the time, I had just started anchoring weekends in Seattle, so I had some of my anchoring on there. And then I, you know, the news director said, you know, I. I'm not going to hire you as an anchor because you're not ready. But I like your reporting. So I'll hire you as a reporter. And that's how I got the job. I was the new Kaidi Tong. That's what they <laughs> call people would call me. Oh, you're the new Kaidi Tong. And I go, yeah, I'm the new Kaidi Tong. Well, I remember one of the things you were saying, did you feel accepted? And I remember when I was auditioning for the job in Seattle that first reporter job and there was a manager and she came up to me and she knew me she knew she worked with me across mm-hmm. the hall not directly but across the hall she she knew what my potential was and she said to me I think you've got a really good chance of getting this job because you're you're Japanese or you're Asian mm-hmm. and I thought, gee thanks <laughs> thanks you know yeah so you kind of work both ways. I mean, or and many different. There were many different ways it worked, but that was. I never forgot that comment because it was so condescending. I know this is like going. This is like ancient history, and no, I, you I know, love it's it. a very weird thing because people in the Bay Area think of me as really successful, and they're kind of shocked when I tell them, just sort of in my gut, mm-hmm. how it felt then, and that I still carry those feelings. 
you know, that, that, I mean, I was raised, my parents met in an internment camp. My parents met in a prison camp. And uh, I was born, you know, four years after my mom left that prison camp with my oldest brother. You, you don't grow up in that kind of world and uh, not carry, you know, those emotions deep in you someplace. Sure. Yeah. The fears that your parents felt, you know, that the fear that, that you could lose freedom at any moment for them was a reality because it happened. And whether they, they didn't talk about it, but you pick up all that stuff. You're born into it. It's in your bones. When you got there, did you feel like there was a path to being an anchor? Because it wasn't very long. It was three years. No, that wasn't what I was after. I really, what I wanted to do was to become a reporter. Being an anchor wasn't even on the roadmap. I mean, being a reporter kind of came from outer space. Mm. You know, it was because of Barbara Tanabe, who who went on to to, um, become an anchor and a reporter in Hawaii. She moved to Hawaii. But, you know, it was because of her. I'm not sure without her whether that dream would have, would have uh, I mean, whether that idea would have opened up in my head. Um, but uh, being an anchor was not on the uh, agenda. It happened. A- and the way it happened was when I was a consumer reporter, I had to be on the set. So I developed this, the skill being on the set and reading a script on the set. And there was no teleprompter then. Mm-hmm. You were just working with a script in front of you. And they saw the potential there. And so they promoted me to become Weekend Anchor. And then in the Bay Area, it was a similar thing where they let me, oh, I know what, when he hired me, the news director said, you're not not ready to be an anchor, but I will let you do some fill-in on the weekends. I said, sure, sounds good to me. (laughs) And and they did, and... um, it was within about, gosh, it wasn't very long before they made me anchor of the weekends because our weekend anchor wasn't, it wasn't going so well. And then it was within a year and a half I was doing the 6 and the 11 for similar reasons. Their 6 and 11 clock anchor was kind of blowing himself up. Yeah. And uh, so I would fill in. And then Mac, you know, I would fill in with Mac when I started filling in with Mac. It was just a natural thing that he and I developed really quickly. Dave McElhatton, who, um, you know, I mean, I think he's the best. Uh, Just the warmth. Was real. That came through. Um, He was, that was the real thing. He just had an everyman quality, came from radio, Mm -hmm. um, moved over, not the traditional, you know, anchorman looks. Uh, As a bald man myself, I appreciate that... (laughs) That I grew up with a role model. Um, tell me about meeting him. I mean, what was he like? Did you know him even before you took the job? And how did he how did he help that transition for you? Well, he had been working with an anchorman who had ambitions to go to Chicago and let everybody know it, that this yeah. was a stepping stone for him. And he had taped him back of his desk, and he shared an area with Mac of um, the uh, air, airline sales on flights to Chicago. He had that posted yeah. above his desk because he was trying to negotiate, you know, 
a contract. And they finally got, and then he started bad-mouthing KPIX to columnists and talking, feeding them information about how he was going to go to Chicago and he got offers from Chicago. And they finally just called him in and said, okay, so the point was Mac was working with someone who was not thrilled to be there and letting it be known that he was better than this job. When I came in, I was just happy for the airtime, you know, mm. but scared, really scared. And um, he set me at ease in a way that was so gentle. And, um, you know, he would say, you're going to, you're doing great. You're doing great. I mean, I remember him grab, grabbing my hand and holding it before what I said, you're you're doing great. I mean, what you saw on the air, that sweet, gentle quality was the real thing. I'll tell you something about Mac that will tell you a lot. When he was growing up, his aunt, who was blind, lived with them. And so they had to move. You could not move the furniture because the aunt had the furniture memorized and she would move around the house, you know, safely. But Mac would take her out into the world. And he said, back in those days, you know, he didn't see a lot of blind people out in the world, but he would take her on his arm and take her out. And um, to me, that's what you saw in that, you know, this is, can you imagine this kid? Um, I mean, having the love and the courage to take his, his aunt, blind aunt out without worrying about what people were gonna think of him, you know, just because yeah. he was sweet, because he was, he was that sweet. That's empathy, and I'm sure that's the best quality in a co-anchor you could have had back then. Oh, my God, because I was just so terrified. Yeah. And he had such confidence, because he only came out, he was on radio 25 years. TV was something new to him. Um, but it was kind of a perfect match in ways that I, we didn't, that I didn't fully, fully appreciate. I mean, the both of us appreciated that we really liked each other, and that was an unusual quality back in, in those days. You know, when you had two co-anchors, or most men back in those days were used to anchoring those shows by themselves, and there were men who would not anchor with women. There were men, cameramen, who would not work with women, and, and let it be known, if you were with them, they'd let them know they weren't, you know they weren't happy about it. That was just part of the deal, you know. So I was lucky enough to get this man who was not only willing to work with me, but was a mentor. Yeah. A mentor, really. You know, what I brought to the table was that I over-researched everything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was a high-anxiety over-researcher. And, and just conscientious to a fault. So I, ne- I read every script, I had everything. And in fact, I, and that was my fault. I think that was my real weakness as an anchor person was just over-editing, over-editing, never letting it go, you know. He was relaxed, <laughs> funny. Funny, I mean, I remember callbacks. I mean, you'd, you'd go through a commercial break and there'd be some some wacky thing that happened earlier. <laughs> and, he, and he'd say, make reference he'd to make it. He'd make reference to it. I always felt too like, um, and, and your dynamic that you're describing is is what I saw. I always felt like, I mean, you're a serious news person. You you had warmth, but you were you were there to like showed up that day to tell the news, and it was almost like he was trying to get you to break character. He he, he was absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was his gift to me, right? 
And I don't think I, I didn't never really fully learn that until I got much older and wasn't working with him. I could never yeah. relax totally the way he came. He came relaxed. And it would be years before. And that was my greatest weakness as an anger person was that inability to kind of let go and stop fact checking. Yeah. <laughs> now that sounds bad. But at a certain point, when the words are coming out of your mouth, you got to just go with it. You know, you got to trust the writer had it together and leave it alone and read it. And uh, Mac was, Mac was a a great, uh, he was just the perfect person to have next to me. That, that team, there was about a seven, eight year run there. And then I I went away to college, so I missed some of it. Yeah, it was even longer. I mean, it was, yeah. But I remember... You guys, Wayne Walker, and then <laughs> Wayne. Um, the weatherman was uh, uh, Joel Bartlett. Joel Bartlett. Um, that was it. I mean, you guys were you Wayne. guys were you guys were on top. Oh man, uh, I gotta tell you, Wayne Walker, Mac used to say, nobody has more fun in life than Wayne, <laughs> and it is true. I mean, I can't even tell you the stories of of things Wayne would do because they're just so bad. Yeah. But I mean, bad like hilarious. Um, but. <laughs> I seriously can't. I can't. I yeah. can't say it in pu- <laughs> in public. It, but he was so funny. Yeah. Um. And wonderful. Yeah. I. I mean, I look back on that as just an absolute <laughs> golden era in local television. Oh, it was. We didn't realize that it was the golden era. But you know what's weird? And and it, I. It, I want to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, when you're walking around, you're getting recognized. I'm sure people are complimenting you. You say you didn't recognize that you guys were in a special time like that? No, because television, who knew what the future was? Who knew? I mean, yeah. who, who knew that within uh, 15 years, 20 years, everyone would have a little phone in their hand, you know, a little computer in their hand, and they'd be watching streaming television there. Yeah. You know, I mean, just to we we when I started we were still shooting on film and what I was going to say was what was what's weird is to watch in the course of my career the beginnings of television local television news the zenith and the decline you know the really this arc of this of this uh, industry and um, I remember how um you know, when videotape was introduced, when we could do things live, but when we began to have to compete with cable. Yeah. And then when we had began to have to compete with the internet and then with cell phones, you know, you're competing with cell phones. And it's it's an amazing historical arc. Um, I mean, there were, there were, I, I remember my TV, there were four channels, you know, and then we'd yeah. get, we'd get 44 and 20, but it was two, three, Four, five, seven. Mm-hmm. So that's five, mm-hmm. and then in uh, channel nine, and channel nine, and eleven KQED. was kind of fuzzy. Yeah, and I mean, we have pictures of you. You know, you're on a typewriter here. Yeah. And, and uh, how, how did you how did you um, make that adjustment? And and I should mention you you went to L. A. for a while. Yeah. 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 That was an adjustment. Um. Uh, so adjustments for, from uh, the typewriter to computer, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. The move to L.A. Um, was kind of 
I guess at the time, a natural move kind of given that, you know, I turned out, I didn't start as an ambitious person, but I think I really became one. And um, a lot of, um, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I'm an overachiever. I always have been an overachiever. And then I was in this profession. I was doing well. It was sort of a natural move, you know, and it was awful. Was it hard to leave the Bay Area, or was oh, it hard yeah, to... Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. It was hard to leave the Bay Area, but I had a ton of family in L.A. I actually have more family in L.A. My sister and my uh, ex-husband's entire family was in L.A. Yeah. And I have cousins, and I'm, you know, what was what became apparent to me when I was in L.A. was, you know, where you're in the Bay... I, I missed the Bay Area deeply. And um, but then again, I'll tell you, I, I, I've never stopped being homesick for Seattle either. Yeah. yeah. Be- but they're sort of similar, you know, the Bay Area and Seattle. There's a lot of similarity. There is no similarity with L.A. When I was in the Bay Area, you competed with station across the street. When I was in L.A., you competed with the person on the other side of the cubicle. Everybody had an agent. Their agents were on the phone with the news director and the general manager trying to get their talent to be able to do the 30-second cut-in <laughs> at 3 o'clock, you know, fighting yeah, over who yeah, gets sure. to do the cut-in, you know, coming up at 6. In the Bay Area, people are fighting not to have to do the <laughs> 30-second cut-in. And, um, oh, that may not be entirely true, but the point is is, is uh, there was an individual individualistic kind of competition that um, was really, really difficult. You know, I, I started, or my earliest part of my career was in L.A. in the 90s, and I found the same thing. Um, I met some really good friends, and my friends would give me a ride to the airport, and they were tight with me, but everything involving work, just running into people on the street conversations it was always I felt like everybody was looking out for themselves and I I never unpacked my boxes I mean like once I got there I quickly realized this is a stop and I'm going to get back to the Bay Area really okay I I, I didn't think like I wanted to go to New York even I I actually thought like I had a good thing in the Bay Area I'm just going to go back there and work there and and coming to the Chronicle was like all I wanted to do. Um, and that was LA. I found it kind of cold. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very individualistic. It's, it is the, you know, it was at the time I was there, the, the most competitive television market in the country beyond New York because the industry's based there. But you know, the, the other thing that happened to me, to be really honest with you mm-hmm. is I was taken off a couple of newscasts put on a couple of, of the main newscasts, did terribly because people were really angry that they took their regular anchors off and stuck this kid, newcomer, yeah. not kid, a newcomer out of, you know, from nowhere up there. And um, and I had another, I was working with a co-anchor and it was not, it was just wasn't, it wasn't a good fit and it was bad casting. So they took me off and it was the first time in my career that I had a major failure. And, you know, for an overachiever, (laughs) 
that was that was a very tough, tough um, thing to to handle, and I never got my confidence back. So it, it wasn't just L.A. It was not, it was losing my confidence. And the other thing that happened in L.A. that got me, besides the let's have lunch thing, was uh, there was this division in the Bay Area, because I was there for the riots and uh, the Northridge and lots of, I mean, a huge news, time to be there for news. But you would cross Wilshire going south, and it was poverty. You'd hit poverty, Mm -hmm. and it would go for miles. It wasn't like the Bay Area where there was poverty, but it was in pockets, you know. Not that that was manageable or right, but um, it wasn't this mile after mile of, you know, South Central to Compton to Watts to, you know, of hopelessness. And then you go east, and it's East L.A. And and again, you know, just mile after mile of of um, poverty and hopelessness. And I started doing these stories that we, I, and I came back to the Bay Area and did them. Uh, here they're called Students Rising Above, but there they were called, they were beating the odds. And they were about teenagers who were living in this poverty. And um, so I, I spent a lot of time in Watts and in um, East LA. And the discrepancy between what you saw, you know, it was tale of two cities. And then go back, you know, to the TV station and back home to Santa Monica, and you'd see this other world, this let's have lunch world, you know, swimming pools and, and you know, multiple cars and private schools. And uh, and I was a part of that. I'm not, you know, yeah. I was a part of it. Um, I'm not pretending I wasn't. But it was an awakening to me, and, and um, it began a whole different sort of chapter in my life and in my career. Was part of that trying to get back to the Bay Area? Then I was like, please. I just said to my husband, I'm just not going to live as long if we don't go back to the Bay Area. I'm just not going to live as long because I can't, I can't do this. And um, I just couldn't, uh, you know, I was, I was anchoring 6 o'clock news and I was porting during the day. And you have to drive yourself from story to story. And, and I remember one day I had five locations. I'm driving myself. And then I have to go back, write the story take it into editing, get makeup on, toss to that story on set, and then get ready to do the 6 o'clock news. I said, I'm just not going to live as long. And, and driving in L.A. is, I mean... Please, that'll the, kill you. The, the worst drive in the Bay Area to me is nothing like being on the 405 in L.A., it trying was, to get to an assignment, uh, knowing you're not going to get there. Yeah, I remember one time I had to drive a news van. I was down at some, like, uh, there was, there was a, some... Oh, God, some guy had barricaded himself inside of some big box store, and we were down covering that. The cameraman had to go off on another shoot. They pick him up. They go, Takuda, you got to drive that van back. I had to, my feet didn't reach the pedals. I had to, like, drive it back with my tiptoes and get back in time to anchor the uh, 6 o'clock news. I mean, um, I re- it was just not my town, Yeah, you know? And when I can't got the chance to come back to the Bay Area, I said, it was all I could do to keep from dropping to the ground and kissing the earth, I swear to God. <laughs> I was like, I, I can't believe I'm lucky enough to be back here and finally, and to be at a point in my life where I can truly appreciate it, you know? It was amazing. Yeah. 
it was just it was amazing and the, the in LA you know the news coverage is like you're doing these stories on the uh, late news you had to do a story they had a movie they would have a movie of the week or something on like battered women your assignment would be to go do the real story on battered women right had nothing to do with really the news that not the battered women is something that should be covered but you weren't covering it because of the importance of that story you were covering it so that you could promote the movie and all the way through the movie they would go or promote the news on the movie all the way through the movie they go watch our 11 o'clock news tonight for the real story on battered women and um, I remember L.A. News. I mean, it yeah, there was no <laughs> pretense about it. There was yeah. no pretense about it. You know, it was the new low fat chocolate, the um, the makeup counter at Penny's. You know, it was uh, it felt like I, I and I watched local news down there. It felt like those kinds of stories you get you would get up here maybe during sweeps, you know, something in your hot chocolate could kill you. <laughs> They did that year round. I mean, yeah. that was like yeah. that was their. Defaults. And then, and then, in, yeah. and then in the in sweeps, it would get even more so. But you know, in the Bay, and I'm not saying we didn't do those things in the Bay Area. We did those things in the Bay Area. But I'll tell you the difference. So I come back to you know, and I get a, a job at Cron. I'm going. I God, I'm so lucky. I'm back. <laughs> oh my God, I'm anchor after the newscast. Go into the news director's office, and we're um, having a debrief. You know, to go over what did we do? What did we do? And the news director looks up and he goes, talking about the lead. Did we do the right thing? And I thought, I think I've just died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I've just died and gone to news heaven. I mean, the fact that that would even come up, but it was a news director raising that question after a newscast. Did we do the right thing? You know? Yeah. He came out of the Chronicle, by the way. Dan Rosenheim. Dan Rosenheim. <laughs> I've, I've met Dan Rosenheim. Oh, he's, yeah. He's excellent. What a great guy. Uh, and you... Later on, um, went back to reporting for a few years. Well, I, I actually, yeah, I did. But the main reporting that I ended up doing, and I did it for 17 years, uh-huh. was a series of stories called Students Rising Above. I, I remember that, and I was actually going to, that was going to be my next step. You're, yeah. You're one step in front of me. I remember... I, I think of you that way. I think of you as someone who always was working with students and had this mentorship role. And I initially coming into this interview wanted to ask you if that came from Dave McElhatton, but now I think that it comes from before that. I think it came from, you know, your your own origins. Yeah. Yeah. Um I well I've always liked kids, but I'll tell you what happened was, um because of my own origins and uh, so when I was in LA, I started doing these stories. They they had a series of stories called "Beating the Odds." He did it for two weeks, you know, and it was in uh, in partnership with a nonprofit. It was a children's defense fund, and they would um, give these scholarships to these kids who grew up in poverty, but had overcome, you know, were beating the odds and wanted to go to on to college and. Um, so when I came back to the Bay Area, Dan Rosenheim said, what do, you, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do these stories on these kids. And um, so I started uh, putting that together with uh, uh, the director of the Community Affairs Department, Javier Valencia. And um, we had to talk schools into recommending kids in the, in the beginning. And then later, you know, the kids, we'd have them fill out an application and they would 
And um, we would ask viewers to send in money to help send them to college. And so at first, Javier and I were like, God, what if no one sends in money? You know, what, what, what are we going to do if no one sends in money? So we had a, like a little backup plan. And general manager said, well, we'll give you some money if no one gives you some money. So you'll yeah. have at least something to give these kids. But people did send in money. It, it, it hit this nerve. And I learned many, many lessons from this, a lifetime of lessons. I mean, it, it truly was life-changing. And it gave my life, it certainly gave my career a deeper purpose. I mean, the first lessons I learned were these kids, you know, like, how do they do that? And it was a lesson for me in my own life. It was, they would say things like, well, I just focus on the positive. I don't focus on the negative. I go, aren't you kind of angry? I mean, I got an anger management problem. <laughs> and and uh, they'd say, you know, anger is a waste of energy. I go, wow, that's pretty heavy duty. So I learned from them, these kids, those lessons. I learned about poverty. I learned about the horrible things that are, are happening to these children growing up in the Bay Area. And, um, and I learned about the goodness of people to want to do something about it if they are just kind of given an opportunity in a way, and, and if they just know that the money really is going to go to that kid. So the, it, it eventually became a nonprofit, which still, you know, today is sending kids to college. And, and uh, that's pretty cool. That was 17 years? 17 years I did those stories. I, I'm still, you know, volunteering with the nonprofit, you know, in yeah, different sure. ways. Yeah. Um, you, you said the word when we walked in, you used the word retirement. I don't like to bring that word up unless someone else does, but um, you consider yourself retired. And I'm retired from television, definitely. Yeah. And, yeah. and what's, what's, what are your days like now? I'm doing a lot of environmental volunteer work. I'm actually thinking about a Students Rising Above documentary. In fact, I'm later having a an initial discussion with some people later today about that. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, I want to start doing some writing. Um, when my mom was intern, my mom was a, a really gifted writer, and uh, she was in college when when the evacuation happened. She was in her senior year of college, which was sort of unusual for a Japanese American woman at that time, but um, she didn't get to graduate because she was intern, but she was a literature major, mm-hmm. and what she wanted to do was to become a writer. She saved she was a person of the written word until the day she died and always had a journal and she kept a journal for part of the internment before she went in in the early days of when she went in um and then there's a gap a many a multi-year gap when she went back east and married my dad um and then she actually went back into the camp and she kept a journal during those final days and when my brother was born having a newborn in the camp um, and, mm-hmm. and watching the camps close down. Um, and I want to do something with all of that. Yeah. There was a, I didn't know, and she'd save some correspondence and stuff like that. 
which was sort of that's amazing that you I know. have that record. Well, what happened was she had Alzheimer's. She had Alzheimer's for 10 years. So when she went into assisted living, my job was to go through her files, and she had kept all manner of stuff, you know. I mean, all people do that, but with my mom, because she was a, she was later became a librarian. And I opened this envelope, and here are these letters, and they're all stamped, censored, prisoner of war, internee. Uh, and then I start reading some of these journals and I'm reading this one part and I read it to my brother who had has since then passed away, but it was like when the baby was, my brother was, eldest brother was born. Mm-hmm. And it goes, uh, she's talking about her father, my grandfather, she goes, Pops is really worried about this chest he's making for the baby. He had to make it gather the wood from around the camp. You know, it's all like uh, old apple boxes that are being thrown out. It's wood sure. salvage. She was He was salvaging wood. He was having a hard time getting enough wood. He's, he's all worried about this chest he's making for the baby, and his friends are helping him. He's worried it's not closing correctly and this and that. And my brother looked at me and said, that's our toy chest. Oh. And we went. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Down in the basement of her condominium, and we had grown up with this thing. There's this chest. It's a very homely chest. I never thought much of it. It was our toy box, so we just throw our block, wood, heavy wooden blocks into it and junk when we were, it was time to have for dinner or whatever. And there it was, you know, and I looked at it in an entirely different way. It was the chest my grandfather made in camp. Oh, wow. And, um, I then recognized the wood because he had also made a chest of drawers for my brother Floyd who um, is disabled, so he's in a group home now. But and my mom had made a little label for that and said, you know, Floyd was born in Minidoka internment camp, and his grandfather made this chest of drawers for him, and I recognized the same wood. It was the same stain. I, I never put that together. But, um, yeah, that chest is in my front room now, and I keep thinking I need to... Uh, write this up because how often do you have things like that documented well that's an incredible story and i hope you get a chance to tell it so that's my task that's a task i've been putting off yeah but i'm doing a lot of uh, like i said environmental stuff and um you know just a lot of i'm doing things that are meaningful to me with the time I have left, what do I need to get done? You have a lot of time left, Wendy. I well, wish we people know. could see you right now. No, you, <laughs> you know, look, you know you something, Peter. So the thing <clears throat> is, we don't know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we don't know. It could be, you know, I could f- get hit by a car tomorrow. Any one of us could get hit by a car tomorrow. So with your time, what is meaningful? What do you need to do? Well, I think that's a wonderful sentiment to uh, close with, but I. I wanted to ask you to just if you could give me just one more and you don't have to give me a Wayne Walker story. I I didn't try to get that out of you. But if you could give me just Yeah, I wish I could tell you a Wayne Walker story, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but um off air. Uh, but um when you look back at that time and I'm sure people come up to you all the time. Wh- they come up to me and say, "Are you genuine a hero?" Oh no, they don't. <laughs> I've yes, ha- they do. I've had Jan Yanahiro on this, I know, this I know. podcast um, with, with Richard Hart. Um, what's, what's people spark that memory? People come up to you, talk about those days. And I'm thinking the McElhatton days. What's your primary thought when you think about that? I mean, I, I assume it was something of fondness. Absolute fondness. And I feel 
so lucky to have had that time in my life. Yeah. Who gets to go to work and have fun every day? Yeah. You know, my job, learn as much as I could, as fast as I could. And just, it was just f- so much fun. There were times, I mean, Mac and I would look at each other and go, man, this is, this is as good as it gets. Yeah. You know, the 50th anniversary of the Golden Gate Bridge, I remember sitting up on a rooftop with him and we're watching the uh, fireworks off and the go off and the two of us just sat there and thought, man, this is so much fun. Well, it was... It's ridiculous. It's so much fun. It was fun for us too. And that, um, I just, I'm so happy that she came in and... Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Um, I... I'm just trying not to be a fanboy here, but I, I mean, it, it was my, you know, and I, I don't like saying it. I was, I was not just a child, um, but uh, I was like a member of the family. And, oh, and, bless your heart. And, Thank you. And it, you, you projected the news in a way that, um, if there was bad news, it felt a little bit better because it was personal and earnest and if it was good news, I felt like we were celebrating together. And I didn't realize it at the time until I went to L.A. and saw other newscasts and realized how sterile and distant they could be, how special that KPIX newscast was. And, and all of your work, I mean, I, I'm not discounting KRON and, and, uh, and your return to KPIX, but um, I just remember those 10 years, they were formative years for me. And I no, realized, golden. Really I realized now golden. that I was really lucky to have you guys in my living room. No, I'm honored so, that you would say that. I, I am it that that it makes me feel honored and it kind of makes me feel a little shy. Yeah. But <laughs> that's okay. Um, so thank you for being in my living room. Thank you for coming to my archive. Thank you. And, um, and and thank you, Wendy Takuda, for coming to the Chronicle. Thank you, Peter. Thanks. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Wendy Takuda. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.